1: Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, what do you want to do there Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. This time around, we're looking at 1937's The Life of Emil Zola. And when I say we... I mean, myself and, of course, Trey Hooks.
0: Hello, Blaine. How are you
1: today? Hello, Trey. Ah, I'm doing okay. little congested, but I'm hoping it's not going to be much of a problem for our listeners. So we are looking at The Life of Emil Zola. This is directed by William Dieterle. With screenplay credits going to Norman Riley Rain, Heinz Herald, Grisa Herzeg. With Heinz Herald and Grisa Herzeg sharing story credit. And Matthew Josephson getting credit for the source material, Zola and His Time, which will be in public domain around 2023 or 2024, if I've done the math correctly, at least for the American public domain. There's an and with the word between Harold and Herzog's names on the story, but ampersands between them on the screenplay. So that tells me that Harold and Herzog worked together on the outline, did their own scripts, and then they probably brought in Norman Riley Rain to combine those scripts and come up with one coherent package, which I can see, because even though this is called the life of Emil Zola, it's not really about his entire life. It has elements from most of his adult life, but the bulk of the story takes place in a 12-year period. So what we have is Emil Zola, who, as we start off, is a starving artist who you know, keeps getting his hands slapped by the authorities because. The books he's choosing to write are not particularly flattering for those in authority. He's good friends with Paul Cezanne, who's warning him yet yeah, don't become one of these, you know, the successful fat artists who, you know are no longer in touch with the people. And as his life progresses and he gets more and more successful, there is a parallel story in which a military officer is railroaded. There's some military secrets leaking. Captain Alfred Dreyfus is blamed on some tenuous evidence, and he ends up in exile. And his widow comes to Zola and says, Hey, I've got documentation here that says that the powers that be not only knew he was innocent, but when they found out who was really guilty, they upheld the original verdict and let the guilty men go free just to save face. And Zola eventually takes a look at it. It takes reminders of comments Paul says and made to him to get him to take action and realize he had become a little too complacent. And he writes an article, I accuse in here, or j'accuse in the original French, accusing the authorities of doing this and sending a guilty man into exile, or sorry, sending an innocent man into exile for a crime he didn't commit even though they knew who really did commit the crime, and after years of pushing, finally manages to get that verdict overturned and have the truly guilty party end up punished for it when the innocent man goes free. Although he passes away before the process is completely finished. So I think that's kind of the nutshell version. I don't know if there's any key details you think I missed that should be added in here
0: know that covers it all right so
1: yeah uh, first of all just watching it as a film this was definitely well made and very entertaining
0: and a lot of that rides on the person who played Emil Zola Paul Muni this is our first opportunity to talk about him properly we've mentioned him in past podcasts for last month's show he won Best Actor the previous year for the story of uh, Louis Pasteur, and we spoke about him a little bit when we were covering Cavalcade because he was in I Was on a Chain Gang.
1: Yeah, up to this point, he's actually been nominated for Best Actor four times, and he's actually won the award once. So He was nominated for The Valiant in the second ceremony for I am a fugitive for a chain gang in ceremony number six for Black Fury in ceremony eight and then he won for story of Louis Pasteur and this is actually his fifth nomination for the life of Emil Zola
0: and he's an interesting figure he's one of those forgotten actors for lack of a better word today but he was obviously by the nominations, a huge force in the 30s. I've got the one sheet of the movie up in front of me right now, and it's just Muni's profile. Not Muni Azola, just Muni's profile. And obviously Warner Brothers felt that that alone was enough to sell the movie.
1: Yeah, and at this stage it was. I mean, I listened to old-time radio shows and there are radio plays from this era that joke about how Paul Muni's in everything. Mm -hmm. He was one of the biggest stars, and I don't know that I had seen anything he was in prior to working with this podcast. And now I've seen him in a few things, and I just don't understand why everyone remembers the Clark Gables and, and Spencer Tracy, and there's a number of other major names From this era, but seemingly not remember Paul Muni.
0: He had a relatively brief film career. I I did do a little bit of research on Muni. He came up in the Yiddish theater, and I guess he eventually just decided that the Hollywood lifestyle or the Hollywood way of making entertainment just wasn't for him. So, uh, around the mid 40s, he stops making films and predominantly goes back to Broadway and the theater. He'd have a he would do a few more films after '46, but he primarily became a Broadway actor. So when you compare him to someone like Tracy, who had a career all the way up until his death, until the mid 60s, or others like Jimmy Stewart, who uh, had careers until the 60s or 70s and then would later pass in the 80s, Paul Muni's film career was relatively brief. But Paul Muni had done plays with Marlon Brando, and later in life Brando was asked who was the best actor that he had ever worked with, and he cited Paul Muni. So the actor that most folks consider the preeminent actor of the late 20th century, who's worked with Robert Duvall, Pacino, De Niro, Matthew Broderick, you name it, cited Paul Muni as the best actor he had ever worked with.
1: Yeah, and honestly, seeing the quality of his work, that doesn't surprise me.
0: No, I, I agree. I don't think we have ever spoken about it because it hasn't been nominated, but I think the first film that really brought him into prominence or made him a box office star was Scarface. And while there's absolutely nothing wrong with Brian De Palma's Scarface from the 80s, most people don't realize that it's a remake of a Paul Muni film. Go watch the Paul Muni film. It's the better film.
1: That's I have actually heard that from a number of people. So I probably will get around to it someday, even though I'm not a, a huge fan of the, the gangster genre, as people will hear when we get to 1972. But yeah, Muni himself, he is one of those actors, he's kind of like Gary Oldman is today, where you can see him turn in three incredible performances and not realize it's the same man because his performance is so transformative. I would not have guessed that he was only in his early 40s if I were only looking at footage from the end of this film. He's grown out his facial hair. And... Checking pictures on Wikipedia, Muni is just one of several people who look incredibly similar to their real life counterparts, because this mm-hmm. is a true story. And if you look up the Dreyfus affair on Wikipedia, a lot of people look remarkably similar. So Muni's hair is a little bit thicker than Emil Zola's, but he's got the same style. They dyed it white to make him appear like he's aging. And he had the physicality of an older man nailed. So I had no problems believing that he was an 80-year-old man when he was an 80-year-old man. A lot of people easily overplay that when they're trying to play older. But Muni absolutely nailed it. So I I give him a lot of kudos to that. This is one of the most convincing old-person makeup jobs I've seen, and it's just, yeah, let's dye his hair a little bit white, and then the rest is all in his performance and not in the makeup.
0: I've heard some compare Muni to Lon Chaney in that because of his particular theater background, he did a lot of his own makeup work and was really good at subtle makeup.
1: Yeah, I I would not dispute that based on anything I've seen from either of them. And I've seen quite a bit of Chaney Sr. Chaney Jr. I've seen some of, but I don't think we'd have ever heard of Chaney Jr. if not for Chaney Sr., He is not one of the more talented people that's ever come through Hollywood. So in terms of other key members of the cast, we've got Gail Sondergaard as Lucy Dreyfus. We've got Joseph Schildkraut as Alfred Dreyfus. Gloria Holden as Alexandrine Zola. Donald Crisp as Maître Laboree. Aaron O'Brien Moore as Nana. John Tala Charpentier. Henry O'Neill as Colonel George Picot. Maurice Karnovsky as Anatole France, Louis Calhern as Major Dorr, Ralph Morgan as the commander of Paris, Robert Barat as Major Wilson Esterhazy, Vladimir Sokolov as Paul Cezanne, Grant Mitchell as George Clemenceau, and Harry Davenport as the chief of staff. Now, in terms of the awards, this at the time was a, a record holder for most nominations. A total of 13 individuals were nominated. It was up for Best Actor for Paul Muni. Best Adaptation, so that's for Herzeg, Harold and Riley Rain. Best Art Direction for Anton Grot. Best Assistant Director for Russ Sanders, or Saunders, I should say. William Dieterle was nominated for Best Director. Uh, The Best Original Story nomination also went to Herzeg and Harold. I'm not sure how original story and adaptation could both be eligible categories in this era.
0: Yeah. I was going to say that today that couldn't happen.
1: No. But somehow it happened then. The Warner Brothers Studio Music was nominated for Best Scoring for the film. The Best Sound Recording nomination went to Nathan Levinson. Best Supporting Actor for Joseph Schiltwout and Outstanding Production. Went to Henry Blank. Now, obviously, it won outstanding production because we're discussing it, but it also won Best Supporting Actor. So, Schildkraut won the Oscar for his portrayal of Dreyfus, and our three person writing team won the Oscar for Best Adaptation. And I do know at this time you could qualify for adaptation if it was not what they considered an original story for any reason. So you could actually write a sequel from scratch, but because it's based on another film, that's still considered an adaptation in this day. So I'm not sure what definition they're using for best original story. Maybe it was because the the source material was not in a screenplay or script format to begin with. It wasn't adapted from a stage play. It was adapted from a novel. However, they made that distinction. It received a lot of nominations. So it it actually had a record for most nominated categories at this time, and it ended up winning for Outstanding Production, Supporting Actor, and Adaptation. And that kind of surprised me, because it's... I'm not saying Schildkraut didn't deserve the nomination, but I'm wondering if maybe that was just a less competitive category this year, because his was not the performance that stood out to me.
0: Well, this would have been the second year that the award was awarded and I'm just looking at the nominees real quick Ralph Bellamy was nominated for Awful Truth Thomas Mitchell was nominated for The Hurricane H.B. Warner was nominated for Lost Horizon and Roland Young was nominated for Topper so there's a lot of lighter fare I'm making it as I don't know what The Hurricane was about but at least with The Awful Truth, Lost Horizon, and Topper, there's lighter fare competing against the life of Emil Zola. And if I had to guess, not having seen all of those, I think a lot of the driving force between behind his win could have been the transformation that he undergoes from when he's first accused to imprisoned to then finally set free.
1: Yeah, that could very well be it, because he you do see his deterioration after more than a decade in exile. And the synopsis I'm finding for The Hurricane does make that sound like a drama as well. It's uh, directed by John Ford, produced by Samuel Goldwyn, set in the South Seas, about a Polynesian who's unjustly imprisoned, and the climax features a special effects hurricane, starring Dorothy L'Amour, John Hall, Mary Astor, and so forth. Yeah, so if they're going to lean towards drama, it really would be between those two.
0: Joseph Schildkraut's probably best known today for his two Twilight Zone episodes that he was in. Do
1: you remember which two?
0: Um he was in Death's Head Revisited, where a SS a former SS commandant visits as a revisits as a tourist a concentration camp. And he is the lead spirit, for lack of a better word, who uh, torments the returning commandant. And then the second one he was in was mm-hmm. he's the husband and the elderly couple in the trade-ins, where an elderly couple is considering trading in their aging bodies for new younger models.
1: Okay, yes, both season three episodes. Okay. Yeah, for more detail on those, I would actually recommend the Twilight Zone podcast by I'm blanking on Tom's last name right now. Excellent podcast, but it it is a slow release schedule because he really takes his time. If it takes him three months to do it right, it'll take him three months to release an episode, but it'll definitely be done right. So if you have any interest in the Twilight Zone, check that one out. He's won a couple of Rondo awards for that podcast as well. So looking at all the award categories. So this did beat out The Awful Truth, Captain's Courageous, Dead End, Good Earth, In Old Chicago, Lost Horizon, 100 Men and a Girl, Stage Door, and A Star is Born. That's the original A Star is Born. There have been, mm-hmm. I think, five versions now. So that's, that was what it was up against for outstanding production. For Best Director, Dieterle actually lost to Leo McCary for The Awful Truth. Uh, also nominated were Sidney Franklin for The Good Earth, Gregory LaCava for Stage Door, and William Wellman for A Star is Born. Best Actor, it was Spencer Tracy who won for Captain's Courageous. We also had Charles Boyler playing Napoleon Bonaparte in Conquest, Friedrich Marsh in A Star is Born, and Robert Montgomery in Night Must Fall. Best Actress went to Louise Rayner for The Good Earth, up against Irene Dunn for The Awful Truth, Greta Garbo for Camille, Janet Gaynor for A Star is Born, and Barbara Stanwyck for Stella Dallas. We've already discussed Best Supporting Actor. Best Supporting Actress went to Alice Brady for An Old Chicago. Up against Andrea Leeds in Stage Door, and Shirley for Stella Dallas, Claire Trevor for Dead End, and Mae Whitty in Night Must Fall. Best Original Story went to A Star Is Born by William Wellman and Robert Carson. Up against the writers Robert Lord for Black Legion, Niven Bush for An Old Chicago, and Hans Crawley for 100 Men and a Girl in addition to this film. Best adaptation. The competition was for Awful Truth, Captain's Courageous, Stage Door, and A Star Is Born. There's a lot of names there. I'm just gonna start skimming these. Other winners this year: Best live-action short subject went to The Private Life of Gannets. Two reels went to Torture Money because they had live-action short subject one and two reels, as separate categories as well as best live-action short subject in color. That went to Penny Wisdom because color technology had just started in recent years Uh, the first color film was la cucaracha which is a, a short film that was it just had two color strips it was a little bit off and they were really overplaying the color you know shining red lights on people's faces when they got mad and and that so they were leaning really really hard into it best short subject cartoon went to the old mill by disney best scoring went to 100 men and a girl a lot of these are just the various studio departments, but the other nominees were The Hurricane, In Old Chicago, Life of Emil Zola, Lost Horizon, Make-A-Wish, May Time*, Portia on Trial, Prisoner of Zenda, Quality Street, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Something to Sing About, Souls at Sea, and Way Out West. Best Song went to Sleet Lailana from Waikiki Wedding. Other nominations were Remember Me from Mr. Dodd Takes the Air, That Old Feeling from Walter Wagner's Vogues of 1938, they Can't Take That Away From Me, from Shall We Dance, and Whispers in the Dark, from Artists and Models. Best Sound Recording went to The Hurricane, up against The Girl Said No, Hitting a New High, In Old Chicago, Life of Emil Zola, Lost Horizon, Maytime 100, Men and the Girl, Topper in Wells Fargo. Best Art Direction was Lost Horizon, up against Conquest, Damsel in Distress, Dead End, Every Day's a Holiday, The Life of Emil Zola, Manhattan, Merry-Go-Round, The Prisoner Zenda, Souls at Sea, Walter Wagner's Vogue's of 1938, We Really Winky and You're a Sweetheart. Cinematography went to Carl Frund for The Good Earth, up against Dead End and Wings Over Honolulu. Editing went to Gene Havelock and Gene Milneford for The Lost Horizon, up against The Awful Truth, Captain's Courageous, The Good Earth, and One Hundred Men and a Girl. Best Dance Direction used to be a thing. That went to A Damsel in Distress by Hermes Pan, up against *Alibaba Goes to Town, A Day at the Races, Ready, Willing and Able, Thin Ice, Varsity Show and Waikiki Wedding, and Best Assistant Director went to In Old Chicago for Robert Webb, Up Against Lost Horizon, Life of Emile Zola, Souls at Sea, and A Star is Born. So Zola had 10 nominations in this year, which was the record for the year and the record to date when this film came out, Uh, Up Against Lost Horizon and A Star is Born with seven each, Awful Truth and In Old Chicago with six, and so forth. So if we now look at how History has remembered these films pretty universally, looking at Letterboxd, looking at IMDb. The highest rated films of the year are Make Way for Tomorrow, Grand Delusion, and Captain's Courageous, with Humanity and Paper Balloons and Stage Door coming up pretty quickly after those.
0: Which Grand Delusion, for whatever reason, wasn't nominated this year, but it's on the nominees for next year.
1: Yeah, and the reason for that is probably because at this time, the nomination category is based on, and still is today, when that first airs in Los Angeles. So that's probably because of the delay getting that film over from France. Okay. We'll talk about that in much more detail in the 2004 ceremony with Crash, since that was one where they deliberately withheld the Los Angeles premiere for a year because they felt they'd have a better chance of winning in the next year's Academy Awards ceremony. And it did win, so it worked out for them. But yeah, that was a deliberate strategy that they employed. So of the ones that were actually nominated for outstanding production, this is the only one I've seen.
0: I've seen, uh, the only one that I've seen recently is Lost Horizon, which I'll give a shout out to our good friend Rob Kelly he covered on the film and water podcast I know in the past I have seen dead End and the awful truth but I I was not able to rewatch those for uh, this recording so my memories of those are a little bit
1: older yeah and yeah looking at the IMDb ratings they're of the nominees they are putting captain's courageous at the top of the list that's actually according to IMDB that's number 3 for the year where life of email zola is number 33 for the year as letterboxd has email zola it's a little hard to figure out where that sits on the rankings because that it comes in at a 3.2 out of 5 on letterboxd and for some reason anything that didn't get a number is sorted of at 3.5 when I looked at it. So there's a lot of things that you can't actually quantify where they are on the list above it. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't have a couple hours to go through and sift through hundreds of films one at a time. But it wasn't one of the highest ranked on Letterboxd. Of the nominees, they'd actually put The Awful Truth at the, the top spot. That's number four, Stage Doors at five, and Captain's Courageous is in eighth place. And what I find, IMDb is more the popular vote, so that. The IMDb rankings are a better representation of pure entertainment value, whereas the Letterboxd rankings are more likely to take into account innovation in film and analysis and themes and what they're exploring on screen. So those just tend to be the attributes that have different weightings between them. And both places would actually put A Day at the Races with the Marx Brothers higher on the list than Emil Zola, which is one I have seen, but I can respect what the Marx Brothers have done, especially for stand-up comedy. There, There's no question that what they did laid the groundwork for pretty much all stand-up comedy today, but I don't find that their sense of humor makes me laugh terribly often. It's, so I, I respect them more than I enjoy them.
0: I haven't seen A Day at the Races. Yeah, my understanding, and when I say my understanding, I'm citing sources like Mark Evanier, is that the the Marx Brothers kind of had a sweet spot in their career. You can see where they're trying to go with their first couple of films, like The Coconuts and Animal Crackers. Then they seem to get there with A Night in the Opera and Duck Soup, and the one that I'm forgetting where which is set at a college, then my understanding is starting with a day at the races, you you kind of start to get to the latter part of the bell curve. I haven't seen it, so I can't validate that for myself, but my understanding is day at the races is kind of considered the start of the downswing for the Marx Brothers.
1: Yeah, it it could be. I've got a couple of their box sets because they were cheap, so I've been watching them as they, they come up for this podcast. By the way, the the college film I think you were trying to remember was Horse Feathers. Thank you. And you know, like I said, to me they've never really done it for me, so I I couldn't pin where it starts to decline, because I, I have a hard time finding a peak in their output. I would say that duck soup was probably their most innovative and Night at the Opera works is the, the most traditional, so those are the two I've enjoyed the most. I, I couldn't pin down here's where the decline started because I, I I find that slope to be much more shallow than many other fans do.
0: All that being said, I, I have no dispute with The Life of Emil Zola being the best picture this year. Mm-hmm. Where I'm a little conflicted is, at least out of the nominees that I've seen, this is one of the years to where you have a wide berth of genre and themes nominated. And and I always find that makes for a more challenging year. You know, I think overall, for example, the performances in Lost Horizon were better than the performances in The Life of Emil Zola, with the exception of Paul Muni. But it's almost quantitatively all of the talent in Lost Horizon as good as it was didn't outshine what Paul Muni was doing. And in a lot of ways, I felt like the Life of Emil Zola was almost a one-man play.
1: For a lot of it, he Paul Muni definitely carried it. In terms of screen time, that's the only thing that I actually had was that is a bit of criticism, is that telling this story properly required spending a lot of time with the French military that that Zola was not a part of. So we see Dreyfus get railroaded before Muni's or before Zola even appears to be aware of anything going on. And that's not really a criticism of the film. It's more the title they chose to market it under would seem to imply Zola would be. When I hear a title like The Life of Emil Zola, I'm assuming that Zola's going to be in every scene. But, you know, he will go off screen for 15 or 20 minutes at a time, although that 15 to 20 minutes is all building to something that Zola needs to be a part of. So it's, it's not a structure of the storytelling. It's an expectation based on this choice of title for the story.
0: Right. And as you were saying that, I was thinking that is, but I'm glad they made that storytelling choice because the Dreyfus affair was a huge French scandal. The film was even banned in France Uh, Upon release for a couple of years because it was still a sensitive subject. But as a viewer in the 21st century, I needed all of that background detail that they put in it. So I agree with you. Narratively, it needed to be there. They did a good job of showing a character arc with Zola in this piece. And that's something that often I find biographical dramas miss the point of. And sometimes it can be the conceit of how factual the biopic is trying to be. And this film lays it out very strictly in the title card in the beginning. We are trying to tell an entertaining story. We have used facts to tell an entertaining story. This is not a factual, you know, this is not a hundred percent, Factual and accurate.
1: Yeah, it's the it was you know the general legal disclaimer. Any resemblance to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. Except when we used real people.
0: Yeah, (laughs) but uh, you mentioned it in your synopsis. There is a character arc here for Zola. He is the starving artist who does become famous. You never see him condescend or look down at anyone, but you can tell that he's lost. Touch with his hungry origins. There's that sweet scene between him and the older Suzanne, where Suzanne kind of, with love and affection, divorces himself from Zola because he's not the same Zola. And then you see him resisting getting involved with the Dreyfus affair, which should have been something that was right up his alley. And then once he does get pulled in, it reignites his passion and his drive. So there is a really good, strong character arc here that is often missing from
1: biopic dramas. Yeah, that's true. And like I said, sometimes it's going to be lacking if the subject of the biopic doesn't actually have a strong arc in real life. That could always be a limiting factor. But here, Zola had it, and they showed it. and. The choice to focus on the Dreyfus affair does show the kind of person he is, but it also omits other details. When I was looking things up later, I discovered things like Zola was nominated Mm -hmm. for major awards. I think it was uh, Nobel Prize in Literature twice near the end of his life.
0: That the other thing that I noticed was interesting was you did a Facebook post as we. Often both do when we're watching films for the podcast where he mentioned mm-hmm. this film made you want to check out some of his works. If you read Wikipedia, they make his novel sound like a literary saga following a family through generations in this period of France. The film gives you the impression that they are fictionalized, uh, scandal's not the right word, I'm going to use the word indictment for lack of a better word, fictionalized indictments kind of dramatizing social issues and problems in France. So, you know, you have Nana showing how France treats the young adults coming in with their dreams, and evidently he wrote something about a mind collapse, and then the downfall was the mishandling of the military of the Prussian conflict that France was in at the time. When you read Wikipedia, you get a very different impression of what his books were. He seems more Emile Zola investigative journalist in the film.
1: He does, yeah. Whereas, like I said, in real life, it's more, you know, he will see a problem with society and write a completely fictional account of that problem for the most part. I think the reason that they focused on the Nas story. It wasn't just because that was the the book that put them on the map, but that was the one that was much more closely tied to real life. It, It does seem like a lot of them is like, well, here's a problem that's happening to a lot of people, so I'm going to do a completely fictionalized account where that happens to people, just so we start talking about it.
0: I will also throw out there, there are a few things that the story whitewashes. It's given a happier ending, perhaps, than probably happened. In real life, in in the film, Dreyfus is exonerated. The reality is, in real life, he was offered a pardon if he would plead guilty, which he accepted because it was the only way out of his exile. And then the French government offered a general amnesty to all of the other involved parties. The amnesty settled or removed the criminal libel complaint against Zola. It also absolved the soldier, I'm forgetting his name, who came forward in support of Dreyfus. Unfortunately, it also absolved all of the general staff who were complicit and the cover-up. There's also a historical belief that a lot of the targeting of Dreyfus as the scapegoat was the fact that he was a Jewish immigrant, and the film makes a choice to sidestep that. I think there's only one blink-and-you-miss-it reference to Dreyfus being Jewish. Uh, Some people now think that was because they were trying to avoid a hot topic at the time because of what was starting to happen in Germany in this period, but but I thought it was worth
1: mentioning. Yeah, and it has been mentioned by others. I've Actually, looking at the lettered box reviews after watching it, most of the one-star reviews are giving it one star or half a star because it didn't put enough focus on the anti-Semitism. That, that seems to be the primary complaint to the people who are giving it low scores, is that that was a key part of reality that is not a key part of the film.
0: And I, I don't blame the film for not focusing on it, particularly because of the time that it came out. But also, I think you would have had to take more focus away from Zola to give an impression of either the anti-Semitism views of particular characters or just of the culture at the time. And as you said, we already get a lot of time away from Zola, but even in that, except for Esterhausen and a few other individuals, the military characters are, I don't want to say cardboard cutouts, but you never get to know them as people. So I don't know how you would kind of flesh out that anti-Semitism without taking more time away from Zola.
1: Yeah, I don't know how you would solve that problem either, aside from just making Zola one character in a larger film and not making it the life of Emil Zola, right? you he, he would just have to be part of an ensemble cast, I think, to do that focus. Aside from just taking the military officers we have and making them, you know, unless they just had blatantly anti-Semitical statements. Like, you know, we need to blame someone. Oh, look, here's a Jew, we can blame him. Right? And just flat out make it part of their conversation. But then that's that may be doing a disservice because that's not addressing the societal anti-Semitism that just makes it look like there's some, some individuals that are anti-Semitical. And since they are the ones that represent the French military, it might give the impression the French military as a whole was anti-Semitical. And I don't know that that was the case. It does seem like anti-Semitic individuals railroaded Dreyfus unfairly, but those are the only individuals we know. So making them anti-Semites might actually represent them, but then it might misrepresent the whole of the French military.
0: Right. And just because I want to make sure we don't leave our listeners confused, and uh, of course we always encourage that they watch the film, the Dreyfus affair that we've been alluding to was that it was discovered that there was a traitor in the French military service. Someone had to be declared the traitor. The French military chose a Jewish officer to be the traitor, court-martialed him, exiled him, and stuck to that story even when there was blatant evidence later that it was not that individual.
1: Yeah, and the reason they didn't want to overturn their verdict is because they were trying to give the impression that the French military and the French government did not make mistakes. And that they were just and they were true and if he was convicted, that was it. He was guilty. And that attitude was so pervasive that even Zola, who started his career questioning mm-hmm. authority, said, no, he was found guilty, therefore he's guilty. And he dismisses it hearing the story. And it's not until Dreyfus's wife, did she didn't just bring him the letters. She deliberately left them behind and left all of her evidence in Zola's house when she left after he turned her down. And that was enough. He actually did start reading them and saw, oh, wait a minute. No, this is blatantly obvious. And that's what got the ball rolling. I almost wish that we'd had more time with the wife of Dreyfus, because that would not have been an easy thing to do. She has proof that her husband is innocent, and leaves it behind with a man who just said no, trusting he was going to change his mind and actually read them. It's a gamble that paid out, but the fact that she took that gamble tells me that there's probably more to her character and she was a more interesting person than her total screen time implies. But again, this is about the life of Emil Zola. It's, I almost want to see a movie that's just about the Dreyfus Affair, and Zola is just the character he should be, rather than make it about Zola.
0: I agree, and when I say this, I don't make I don't mean make the military the, the hero. Obviously, the, the general staff wasn't. But just show what went into the thought processes. You know, who thought it was a good idea Uh, you know, oh, I know how we'll make this go away. We'll also court martial Esterhausen, but rig it so that he'll be found innocent and acquitted. No, no, we heard your side. We we decided your side was wrong. See, we're fair.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, the, there is an interesting story here, and it's, I mean, I haven't seen the other Oscar nominees, but having watched this, I can completely accept that it was chosen as Best Picture. I've I've got no issues with that. The fact that it shows up so far down the lists, I mean, some of it might be skewed, because like I said, the predominance of the the reviews that actually have comments with the low ratings are the ones that also say that you know, they're missing a key part of the story with the anti-Semitism, and they may be right. But in the, the culture at the time, it wouldn't have been as easy to spotlight that. So yeah, to me, seeing it this far down the list isn't automatic evidence that the Academy was wrong to pick this film, but it is compelling evidence that I should take the time to track down the other nominees that are considered to be even better than this.
0: No, I, I agree. I also think that And I often find this the case. I also think a key driver in some of these things is, of course, the number of people who have seen something. You and I are film lovers, and we talk to other film lovers. You know, our, our good friend Paul Spitaro on Is It Jaws, you know, how many times has he mentioned, I discovered Actor X, and then I consumed everything I could find with this particular actor in it. We are in a generation who grew up knowing who Spencer Tracy, Cary Grant, Humphrey Bogart were. If I'm doing my job right with my kids, my kids will, but I don't know that by and large their generation will remember those same names that I just rattled off. When you look at who is involved in the picture, There are no names here that would make somebody seek this out.
1: Yeah, I mean, Dieterle and Muni are both strong names for their era. But as we were saying earlier, they did not end up as household names.
0: The Awful Truth is an early Cary Grant film. Captain's Courageous, you know, we've already mentioned Spencer Tracy. Dead End was a Humphrey Bogart film. I first saw Dead End, not even because of Humphrey Bogart, but because of how television worked in the late 70s, early 80s in uh, different parts of America and what they used as filler. The The Bowery Boy films were part of um, my normal Saturday-Sunday routine, and the Bowery Boys spun off from the Dead End kids, and the Dead End kids came from dead end so there are different you know even lost horizon you probably don't know that film but you know frank capra because of other films he's done so you may have stumbled into that film i just don't know that there's an entryway unless you're people like us or you hear people like us recommending it for people to go oh the life of emil zola i need to check that out
1: yeah yeah i i would agree with that so all right, so, yeah, I guess the last thing to do is say, who would we recommend this to? So who should make it a priority to track this down and watch it?
0: Anyone who just likes a really good film. You know, there's great acting in this. It, it's a good story. It, the Dreyfus Affair gives it a, a nice hook to pin itself on. We, we spoke about the controversy because of, Sidestepping some of the anti-Semitism, but I, I can't. I, I have a ten-year-old and a twelve-year-old. I, I don't see anything objectionable to where I wouldn't want them watching this if I was watching this. So you know, there's nothing particularly gruesome in it. It, it does go up to Milzola's death. I've been wanting to make a joke all podcast about Chekhov's draft, but because it, throughout the film he's always concerned about. Drafts and making sure the windows are all closed and everything is shut tight, and he dies because of carbon monoxide poisoning because of a faulty chimney, and because he kept everything so shut up, there is nowhere for the fumes to go but i can't I can't think of a particular target audience other than just people who like a really good film
1: yeah i I would agree if you've got any interest in. Military history in general, French military history in particular, or the Manzola, absolutely track this down. It's big for those, but it is so well made that you could come in with no intrinsic interest in the subject matter and still enjoy it. So, yeah, I would say it is worth tracking down and watching just if you have the opportunity, period.
0: I think it would work really well as kind of part of a mini. Paul Muni, watch through. I I need to see the story of Louis Pasteur, the way I, my film-watching little side projects go. I haven't gotten to it yet. But, you know, sit back and watch Scarface, and then I was in a chain gang, and then The Life of Emile Zolan. See a great actor in three very different performances. Throw in The Good Earth. We haven't talked about it, but he was also the male lead in The Good Earth
1: that also came out this year. Yeah, that was uh, Wang Lung. So I've actually got his Wikipedia page up. He ended up making 22 films for Hollywood. Feels like more. They even have a quote from Hawkeye Pierce in an episode of MASH talking about his childhood in the Great Depression. He says, you knew where you stood in those days. Franklin Roosevelt was always president. Joe Lewis was always the champ and Paul Muni played everybody. Looking at Muni's film career, his debut performance was in The Valiant, and he was nominated for Best Actor. Later that year, he did Seven Faces. That was 1929. In 1932, he did Scarface and I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, nominated for Fugitive. 33, The World Changes. 34, Hi Nelly. 35, he did Border Town, Black Fury, and Dr. Socrates. There was enough backlash over Betty Davis not being nominated for of Human Bondage in 34 that in 1935 and 1936 they allowed write-in votes and Paul Muni came in second in the voting for best actor for his role in Black Fury when he wasn't on the ballot that was pure oh. write-in votes got him second so if he was on the ballot he could very well have won that year as well 1936 he won as Louis Pasteur in The Story of Louis Pasteur also directed by William Dieterle 37 he was in 3 films The Good Earth the Woman I Love, which we haven't talked much about, and Life of Emil Zola. 39, we've got Juarez and We Are Not Alone. 41 is Hudson's Bay. 42, Commando Strike at Dawn. 43, he plays himself in Stage Door Canteen. 45, we've got A Song to Remember in Counterattack. 46, Angel on My Shoulder. And then 52, we've got Embarco at Mezonette. He plays The Stranger with the Gun. That was released as Stranger on the Prowl in the U.S., so I think that would be an Italian film. I could be mistaken. And then his last Hollywood performance was 59 for The Last Angry Man, and again, nominated for Best Actor in that one. Yeah, He even did The Story of Louis Pasteur as a Lux Radio Theater production Mm -hmm. of that in 1936, which could be worth tracking down, because I think all the Lux Radio Theater radio shows are now in the public domain. They chose not to defend the copyright on it. So that's one we probably could legally track down for free if it still exists and check out his purely auditory performance on that one. But yeah, I I can't think of anyone I wouldn't strongly recommend this to. Maybe the very young, you know, if people are just not willing to watch a black and white film, well... This may not change their mind, but they're also probably not listening to this particular episode of the podcast, although they may be joining us later in the series.
0: Like I said, I already alluded to it. We always like to call out whether or not there would be anything offensive in this. By this point, we're well within the production code. It's alluded to that the inspiration of the novel Nana is a prostitute. Anyone who's not looking for it Like, a child's not going to pick that up from the way it's presented in the film. It ignores the anti-Semitism, but at the same time, that also means that there's nothing aggressively offensive. There's no slurs that you would need to be worried about someone picking up and learning and repeating or anything like that. You know, again, I, I mentioned the way TV worked, you know, in the late 70s. Early 80s, on the secondary stations in the States, in the big enough markets, there was normally an affiliate that would have kind of a family classics show. I could see this being, when when they didn't have something literary, they would go for something quote-unquote historical. I could see something like that fitting in that time slot on, something like this fitting in that time slot on that type of
1: show. Yeah, I, I certainly could too. But yeah, unless you have anything else to say, I think it's time to just let people know what we're going to be looking at next month.
0: Next month, we will be covering Frank Capra's You Can't Take It With You, starring Jimmy Stewart.
1: Yep, yeah, which had some pretty stiff competition. So it was nominated against The Adventures of Robin Hood, Alexander's Ragtime Band, Boys Town, The Citadel, Four Daughters, Grand Illusion, Jezebel, Pygmalion, and Test Pilot. So, a number of those are still fairly readily available. And I'm thinking, I mean, we're trying to watch all the other nominees we have access to. So, we might as well start listing them as we announce the next winner. If anyone else wants to watch those along with us, too.
0: Uh, sure. For myself, that would be Boys Town, The Adventures of Robin Hood. Alexander's Ragtime Band, and Jezebel.
1: Yeah, and I've I've seen The Adventures of Robin Hood fairly recently, but yeah, uh, Jezebel, Grand Illusion, and Pygmalion are readily accessible. I've actually got a, a wonderful box set released by the Criterion Company, Fifty Years of Janus Films, mm. which is fifty movies with Criterion quality transfers, but no bonus features. And Pygmalion and Grand Illusion are both in that set. Grand Illusion is also currently available on the Criterion channel, if anyone subscribed to that streaming service, which I am very happy with, because it's also one of the few streaming services that launched simultaneously in the US and Canada, so we can actually get it. It's, uh, trying to watch things on CBS All Access is a bit of a pain. Even though CBS All Access is now finally available in Canada, they're honoring existing contracts, so the Star Trek and Twilight Zone shows are not actually on the service in Canada. Ugh, because they were licensed to others. So it's I uh, yeah, the reviews were all negative. I checked it, it's like, yeah, the service works fine, but the shows I came for are not here.
0: Oh, I was going to say what and I, I'm not familiar with all of their offerings, but if those two weren't on it, I don't know why I would have it. <sighs>
1: Yeah, pretty much their original shows will probably eventually land there now that the service is is running. But at, for this point, it's more like, you know, if you want to stream Cheers, that's where you do it. That kind of thing. Okay.
0: Disney Plus will be day and date with the U.S., right? In Canada?
1: That's correct. So, Which is also tipping behind the curtain a bit. so people now know that, yeah, we are recording this before that service even launched. Even though you're hearing it many months later all right so yeah join us again for next month when we talk about you can't take it with you and a number of others thank you for listening thanks everyone my mom always said life
0: was like a box of chocolates you never know what you're going to get please sir i want some more